I just thought that was the best way to start the programme this morning. Chicago is all of our kinds of town because it ended a drought of 111 years for Ireland to beat New Zealand. We had to travel to do it, but by God, they put on one hell of a show and it was one hell of an Irish attendance at Soldier Field last night. It was a fantastic 40-29 to win. Most of us didn't see it because it was on a channel we didn't have. But nonetheless, we're all elated this morning. How do the good people of Dublin feel about it? Well, we've been out and about and asking them. I just found out on the radio. <laughs> I did. Nice one. So lovely. If I knew they were going to win, I would have said away. Great to win. And uh, I've been watching them now for 40 years and that's the first time we've beaten them. So fantastic stuff. It was one of the best performances I've seen from Ireland in, in many years and good on them. The defence was incredible, the attack was incredible and uh, they beat the... Yeah, it's rugby. First job is got to beat the Pajazes out of the opposition and they did. Their son was at it. Uh, he lives in New York so he went down to Chicago. Great game. So he's over the moon. I, I knew as soon as I got off the plane because my Facebook feed was just completely like Ireland, 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 Ireland. So it was amazing. Yeah, yeah we're really happy. Yeah, yeah. It's good. Good atmosphere and stuff. Like Everyone seems in good form and stuff, so it's good. It was fantastic. Well done to Ireland. Brilliant win. Just great. Amy Malloy uh, speaking to the people around Dublin this morning who are all very happy, as indeed are our panel, Roisin Shortall, Social Democrat TD for Dublin North West, Mary Hannafin, Fianna Fáil Councillor and former Education Minister, and that will become rather relevant as we go on, and Fia Kelly, political correspondent for the Irish Times. But the one thing is none of us actually saw the match last night because it was on, I think, air, which is uh, limited enough, I suppose, in the amount well, of people that have it. They have to repeat it when the All Blacks come to Dublin mm. uh, next month, you see, so they'll have to do it all again so that we can see them. But it is a fantastic win, though, that we've managed to do something that has been eluding us. I mean, Munster beat them in mm. the 70s and God knows they dined on that for long enough, didn't they? Yeah, I saw someone send out a funny tweet this morning saying, God help us, there'll be a run of special musicals in the Olympia com- to commemorate this victory <laughs> over the All Blacks as there was with the famous <laughs> Munster win. But yeah, no, an astonishing achievement. Again, I didn't have air, so I was re- reduced to following it on Twitter last night. And, and there's something absolutely unsatisfying and unedifying about following such a momentous sporting event on Twitter as I was doing last night as well and you just feel as if you're at sea trying to work out whether that tweet is genuine or not and we know people have got into trouble but, but it's that also the even the timing if you're following even the radio comments because when it was 33-29 and there was only one score kind of between them and you're kind of watching and saying okay is that actually the way or am I two minutes behind mm-hmm. you know so and you're waiting until you, you get to the, the full time well it, the full-time whistle did come and we did win and it was five tries and it was brilliant and it's all over the newspapers and we'll come to that in just a minute. 53106, by the way, let us know uh, what you thought of the match if you were watching it last night and we'll talk sport with the off the ball lads a little later on. We'll go to the front pages of the newspapers to begin with and the brilliant photograph of uh, Simon Zebo um, who was celebrating with Conor Murray try scorers both. Um, they played their part last night. That picture um, must have gone to bed very late the Sunday Times because they managed to get that photograph in in their front page story, though, the main story, public servants want fast track pay restoration. Uh, public sector unions are planning to make a series of individual pay claims backed by the threat of industrial action if the government does not speed up talks on reversing pay and pensions cuts imposed during the fiscal crisis. Uh, they also reference the US presidential election there with the headline, Clinton fight Trump's late surge in race. Hillary Clinton is fighting to hold on to a narrow lead in the polls in the US presidential race as her rival, Donald Trump 
Trump surges in key battleground states. And who would have thought that we would have been talking about that with just two days to go to the US presidential election? Uh, Sunday Independent has uh, one big story on the front page. Minister warns of pay deal threat to government. A cabinet minister has warned that the government will collapse if the agreement on public sector pay and pensions fails to hold. Is it a Fine Gael minister? Well, no, not really, because it's Dennis Nocton, the communications minister, who is warning um, that uh, the Labour court ruling on guard the pay that set cost £50 million, uh, would be very hard to see this particular government remain in place if the Lansdowne Road Agreement was breached to appease the demands of public sector unions. Uh, front page of the Sunday Business Post, they have a big special investigation, which is uh, quite worrying, uh, how doctors and hospitals cash in from Big Pharma. Public hospitals unable to account for millions of euro. Big drug firms pay almost one third of senior HSE doctors. It's Susan Mitchell and Jack Horgan Horgan Jones who wrote this. An SBP investigation today reveals that drug companies are funding dozens of medical and nursing posts in some of the biggest hospitals in the country, while one third of the HSE's most senior doctors are receiving money from pharmaceutical firms. The investigation also found that hospitals are unable to account for millions of euro that pharmaceutical companies say they have paid them. Hospitals say that no visibility of many of these payments which were uh, sometimes made to individual departments and organisations controlled by groups of doctors. Roisin Shortall before we go to the rest of the papers you were in the Department of Health. Mm-hmm. This makes for very worrying reading that so many doctors are being paid not by the HSE but by drugs companies. Absolutely and so many doctors and other people working in the health service receiving top ups from the pharmaceutical industry. Now you know there's a very obvious conflict of interest there and given that in this country I think everybody is very conscious of the fact that pharmaceuticals are so expensive. Here, medicines are so expensive for people paying themselves, but also in terms of the state's bill for for drugs. Uh, It's absolutely huge. And as a percentage of the overall health spend, we spend far more than most other countries. So there is a very direct conflict of interest there if the pharmaceutical industry is funding, you know, parts of our our doctor training and indeed the operation of some of the health service. Who should be in charge of stopping that? Is it the HSE or is it the department? Or is it the Medical Council? I, I think the department obviously has to play a role here. The Medical Council... It governs the operation of doctors and their standards and all of that kind of thing. And I don't think it's enough to have self-regulation anymore. This is something that I've raised over the years, I must say, and I I continue to be concerned about it. Susan Mitchell and Jack Horgan-Jones have a fantastic, big, exclusive inside the paper. Um, And it, it is a very urgent issue that needs to be dealt with. And I really think that it is time now for the Minister to take a stand on this and to say that it's wrong for pharmaceutical industries for the pharmaceutical industry to be funding any element of uh, of, of doctor education. It, it shouldn't it, be happening and there shouldn't be these top-up payments and these golf weekends and the trips to Spain and all of this kind of thing because it does constitute a conflict. We all think it's it's little more than the notepads that the doctor might have in the GP surgery mm-hmm. with the drug's yeah. name on it. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a lot uh, bigger than that and it is a, a good read in the Sunday Business Post. But, but most worryingly, I think, Jonathan, there is the suggestion that you could have doctors recommending and prescribing medication for people that isn't in their best interest. They're Mm. doing it for other interests. Again, a a big issue for that particular sector. The other uh, story on the front of the Sunday Business Post related to public sector pay and uh, if you're not in the public sector, you're going to read this and go, well... 
What, what road are we going down? Public sector pay demand set to hit budget 2018. We haven't even started spending budget 2017 yet. Uh, the government is fearful that demands from public sector workers for pay rises will rule out any tax cuts in the next budget. There's provisionally 1.2 billion of extra funding available for 2018, but this is actually closer to 550 million due to a knock-on effect of paying tax cuts and spending increases in budget 2017. So we're not going to get that next year, lads, if that's the way it goes. The mail on Sunday goes with the altar boy who became an ISIS bomber. Um, it's uh, suicide bomber Khalid Kelly who flew to England to say goodbye to his wife and three children before travelling on to Turkey and crossing into Iraq. That's a claim from the Irish Mail on Sunday. Uh, they obviously went to bed because they don't have too much on the rugby on the front page, uh, nor do the Sunday World. Their front page story is a uh, Fat Freddy murder rap, uh, which is a Nicola Talent exclusive. Um, let's talk about public sector pay to begin with. And, and Fia Kelly, uh, it's dark. What they're saying is that Lansdowne Road is being and has been unpicked by what was agreed late on Thursday night and recommended by the Labour Court and accepted by the GRA. And it would appear that they're all lining up now to get something similar. Yeah, there are serious questions over the Lansdowne Road agreement now. I think the the scale and the, the, the scope of what the Labour Court recommended surprised many people in that. I think many people in government felt that they had made an offer to the guards, which is around €30 million. Euro. And that would be form the basis of the Labour Court recommendation. However, the Labour Court went far beyond that, and I think its 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 eventual offer was more towards forty million. And crucially, it brought a lot of proposed payments forward till the start of twenty seventeen, which immediately brought people like the nurses impact the CPSU out to express concern about this and say that this was undermining the agreement. And in particular, I think if you look at what Liam Doran of the INMO said on, on Friday morning, he said that his members were also watching this very carefully because an element of the deal was that the guards received a payment for a 15 minute pre-shift briefing that uh, was a, a, kind of a handover a handover you, you think of Hill Street Blues yeah, and the sergeant a, a, coming that's in that's actually called the Hill Street sh- shift I believe in, in the guards but he said look our members nurses do the exact same thing therefore we'll be putting in for the same uh, payment and he also he also raised concerns with this rent allowance this rent allowance that was taken away from him younger entrance to the guards now being brought back uh, it's worth 4,000 euro but it'll be rolled into the pay for other members of the force as well so it'll have an impact on overtime and hourly rates so they were raising concerns about that but the, the problem is that the guards deal is going to kick in in 2017 the government has allocated 290 million towards public sector pay in the Lansdowne Road deal for 2017 that does not include this 40 million so if we see the, uh, the INMO and various other people coming in looking equal treatment then that 290 million is going to expand rapidly and we have we're in a situation now where the government can't introduce supplementary estimates so their entire budgetary pay policy would be picked apart Mary Hannafin in that context did the government bottle it when it came to the guards push came to shove we wouldn't have had any guards on the street on Friday and, and they had to agree to something that they knew was going to open the can of worms well, I think a guard strike had to be averted. There's no doubt about that. Um, cause I think it would have been very damaging um, for for the force themselves, but um, but but also for for all relations. I think with um, every public sector. But the problem was the government left it too long. Right? They've known this was coming down the tracks for a number of months and left it until the very last minute. When I saw the agreement the other night, um, I thought parts of it were very creative, um, particularly the ones about the annual leave and uh, mm. giving money because you're not assured when you're going to get your annual leave. And I looked at that. And I said, well, every teacher knows exactly when they're getting their holidays, so that can't apply to them. But as has been said, the 15 minute handover could apply to nurses. Um, But all the papers today are talking about it. Um, But they all have different figures. It goes between 40 million, 45 million, 50 million immediately. And of course, the big question is where they're going to find it. 
already we see other ministers saying, well, you're not getting it out of my money. Um, Finnegan McGrath, even within um, the whole health sector, is saying, well, it's not coming out of disability, quite rightly. Um, is Frances Fitzgerald going to be able to find it in hers? I mean, highly unlikely. Um, but it's going to have to be paid by somebody. And I'm going to put it out there that it's going to be paid by Joe Soap Taxpayer, who is going to have to not either get uh, some money back next year or is going to lose out on services somewhere along the way. Well, it is going to come out of services that have been promised already because, as Mary said, uh, we've already seen ministers out expressing concern about, well, this 40 million plus, whatever the figure eventually arrives at, is not coming from my back pocket. Thank you very much. And uh, the, the, what I suppose what makes it even more uh, I suppose potent is that Pascal Dunne who had cabinet last week turned around to his colleagues and said look I've already told you guys I have 290 million euro for pay if I'm pushed anywhere beyond that I'm going to be come back back to you collectively asking where we get it from he's going to go back to cabinet this week and say I have an extra 40 million to find where am I going to get it from now there is a talk around government that the Department of Justice will be asked to stump up a large proportion of that from its own funds because let's let's face it they're the ones dealing with the guards but not all of it so other ministers are going to have to face perhaps getting some of their pet projects taken off them to pay for the guards Roisin Shortall there is not an iota of realisation I would argue in a lot of the arguments that have been put forward for public sector pay restoration for where the money is going to come from. They just all want it and they all want it now. That's right. And, you know, following the guard, the proposals from the, from the Labour Court the other day, you know, the genie is out of the bottle now in relation to Lansdowne Road. Um, and part of the problem, I think, in relation to the Gardaí is that what they were looking for in initially was access to the Workplace Relations Commission and the Labour Court so that there was some independent system of arbitration in relation to their pay and conditions. Now, the government should have responded to that demand far earlier. Mm-hmm. This wasn't something that happened overnight. It's not like the blue flu where, you know, there's very little... Yeah, but they didn't get into the that. LRC and the Labour Court they until this week. until yeah. the last week. So, you know, again, this has been a feature of this government, I think, where they don't act until their backs are absolutely to the wall and they've no choice but to mm. act. There doesn't seem to be any kind of forward thinking, forward planning going on in government in this regard. You know, there's huge history to all of the very strong feelings within in the public sector at the moment. Initially, you know, if the government had responded to that demand from Gardaí, we may not find ourselves in this situation now. That should have happened, certainly. But equally, you know, there is growing demand now from public sector workers. They want to know what is the schedule for full pay restoration. Mm. The government hasn't talked about that. There's no kind of vision or there's been no discussion. But can it talk about, about that? Because it doesn't know if it's going to have the money to be able to do it. No, but it could at least have a clear principle. plan in relation to the future of the public service. I mean, are we going to fund the public service properly? Are we going to address the issues that are driving pay demands within mm. the public service, more importantly? You know, we're talking about the restoration of rent allowance for, for uh, the Gardaí. The same could be applied to any workers, mm-hmm. um, you know, public or private sector workers. I think the failure of the government to tackle the housing crisis has been this government's biggest failure. And, you know, that's driving demand for, for wage increases, as is the growing cost of living, insurance, health costs, you know, all of the, the, the stealth taxes that were introduced. Okay. So it, they're all connected. The problem is that you're talking about the improved public services or the improved public service pay because the parameters for the next budget are still quite tight. 
um, due to the European fiscal rules, we, the government or any government who's in office won't have that much to spend until the deficit comes down to a certain level and that's not going to happen until the year after next. So Budget 2018 is, at the moment has 1.2 billion of new money to be spent. That's still very tight. The last budget was only 1.2 billion. We saw how thinly that jam was spread. So the talk now seems to be that Lansdowne Road, which is due to run to September 2018, nobody believes it's going to last given the demands that are piling up. But you'd have to have a successor agreement in place for the next budget, which means that public sector pay increases would have to kick in in January 2018. That will take up a huge proportion of that £1.2 billion, taking funds away from everything else. And Mary Hannafin, do you think the ASTI, who are going into negotiations in the department uh, at some stage this morning to try and stave off the supervision and substitution route that's going to close all the secondary schools, well, 500 of the secondary schools, from tomorrow. Do you think they're going to be buoyed by what happened at the Labour Court the other night? Is it going to give them confidence that they can push this government a little bit more? Well, I'm sure they are, the same as everybody else. Um, but um, I'm not sure that they're dealing on the same, they're playing on the same pitch at all, you know. Um, but they think they are. But they, they, they think they are. I'll just go back to them one second, but uh, just following up on what Roshan was saying there, I think there's a few very good articles in the papers today that are pointing to why this happened. Um, and one of them, actually, David McWilliams talking about, it's housing. It's all about housing and housing and the cost of housing. And if you can't afford, if you don't get the pay, you can't afford to buy a house, you can't afford mm. to live. Um, and Mary Regan has a good one in the Sunday mm. Business Post where she's saying that actually Enda Kenny over-egged the recovery uh, and talking about it. And so raised expectations so much that now people are coming forward uh, and, and looking for more and more. And the same is true of the teachers. And when the teachers went on strike two weeks ago, it was clear cut, it was clean, they were on strike, schools were closed, that was one day. What's happening this week is actually much more difficult to manage because what they're saying is we're available to teach but we're not going to do substitution. And we've prevented... And we've prevented headmasters from allowing others That's to right. come in and to, to fill in the gaps. So, so more the management really have no option um, because you can't bring in people at short notice. We don't have people vetted. Um, you can't just open up the schools and leave t- teenagers kind of wander free. Um, so the schools are going to close tomorrow in- indefinitely. Um, so have they, have they shot themselves in the foot on this one because they didn't control this particular issue as well as they controlled the other issue which is the younger teachers pay? I think the government should have set out a plan um, for the restoration of the younger teachers' pay over a number of years. Can't do it next year, can't do it the year before. But what they didn't do was they didn't even accept the principle of equal pay for equal work. And I think if they accepted the principle, then you could start working towards the plan. It, it's funny because obviously every row is going to be resolved at some point and people mm. will go back to work and, and normal industrial mm. relations will resume. And we're talking about the Garda deal in particular as if this is something, that, yes, it stopped the strike from going ahead on Friday, but the question is whether it's going to be accepted. Now, we have a text in, signed a Garda in a North Dublin station saying, you are talking like this deal is done. Well, it's not. It's not what we asked for, so bring on the ballot. And that would appear mm. to be an yeah, opinion strongly held by many members of the I think Jim Cusick has a piece in the Sindo today and is reflected in pieces across the papers today and yesterday that this is not by no way by no means a done deal within the GRA in particular because the executive itself seems to be quite split about accepting this recommendation and putting it to the membership and the feeling is that the, the rank and file GRA they may accept it narrowly but there's a large body of opinion within that association that is not happy as your texture says with the deals on the table and they want their payback to 2012 levels and nothing less and the problem is I don't think they're going to get that so 
they perhaps will have to go on strike for a day or two, reballot again. But they think the Labour Court decision, given that the association, the jury, has gone into the Labour Court, the government has gone into the Labour Court, it wasn't what the government wanted. But if they were to reject the Labour Court decision, having asked for so long to get access to those mechanisms and then reject it, I think that would undermine their position as well. Uh, um, Roshan, just on that briefly. Yeah, I mean, we're talking as if it's going to be accepted and, and, you know, the cost of this, but there's no guarantee whatsoever that it will be. And as I say, there's so many different issues playing into this. You know, there's the whole thing of the the perceived downgrading of the public service. Obviously, equal pay for equal work for new entrants is a huge factor in that. The the very significant cuts in numbers in the public sector that took place during the austerity years, as well as the pay issue. So, you know, there's a whole lot of factors in, in this. And you have to ask, like, is there any plan there from government at all to handle this? Do they have any vision about the future of the country in terms of the role of the but public sector? But you, ha- you have to wonder and, as well. And the whole kind of question of, of tax uh, cutting. Public uh, sector is very important. We all use the services. They are are there and they are serving all of us, public sector, private sector workers alike, young and old. But what I find striking as someone who's always worked in the private sector is that we get stuck up on industrial relations about a 15 minute break here or something, Hmm. you're getting unpaid hours here or supervision and substitution over there. In every other industry, in every other profession, you get paid to work a certain amount of hours and Mm -hmm. during that amount of hours you do the work. And I think on the basis of the time negotiations that we've seen in the last week, there's not going to be much support from people Mm. in the private sector for this kind of stuff. A lot of it is, let's face it, guff to try and get more money. The other issue is whether, like this, the great phrase of pay restoration because public sector unions don't like the phrase pay rise um, because they say, well, it's not a pay rise, it's going back to what we were paid Pre, pre-crash pre our pay levels is can we afford to go back to those levels of pay like let's not forget that the reason that the economy you know spending went out of control was the process of benchmarking because public sector unions were awarded se- seriously high pay increases and then when the crash came they were pegged back so the question has to arise I think it's been raised by Dan O'Brien and Cliff Taylor in the Irish Times in recent weeks as well is this idea of restoration is all well and good but restoring to what? Restoring to the levels that were unaffordable in the past and perhaps that's a question that's to be faced up to as well. And Dan O'Brien has a piece in the Sunday Independent today where he's pointing out that the economy is actually slowing and that has mm. to temper everybody's expectations that, you know, I think Mary referenced Mary Regan's piece in the Sunday Business Post which was quite accurate. She said, look, let's this all talk of let's keep the recovery going, raise expectations but in fact the, the economy is slowing and we had assumed growth rates of 5% in the years ahead. I think what Dan is saying and what other people have said in recent days with Brexit, with the possibility of a Trump victory, you'd be lucky if you got ticking over great growth rates of 3%, but the Irish economy traditionally has been 5% or below 2%. We've never managed that middle road of but growth. But it now looks past. like the public sector pay bill is hitting towards 18 billion again, which is exactly the figure that was unsustainable in 2008. Mm, mm. Right. So if it's going to start hitting that, it means people can't get their tax reductions, but more importantly, um, the services are going to have to be cut. And it's the one message that every politician of every party got this year during the election. It was the importance of services. Um, And if the government keep on this track without having a long term plan, which would take into account the potential effects of Brexit or Mm. Trump or anything else, um, then it's those very services that people are going to suffer. Doesn't it also highlight how wrong the strategy was that was pursued by Michael Noonan in relation? Do you remember the promise to give back 
uh, 4.5 billion euro the by abolishing the, yeah the, the huge fiscal space that he was talking about that you know get rid of the, the USC well, sure, look, isn't that the kind the of thing you'd say during an election isn't this the problem okay well I tell you what we've, we've mentioned Trump he is looming over all of us uh, like the big orange faced clown that he is um, and we'll talk about him and the possibility of him becoming president and we'll talk about drink because we might actually need a bit of it if he does become president on Tuesday stay with us Right, lots still to come on the Sunday show. Our panel this morning, Roisin Shortall, Mary Hannafin and Fia Kelly. Um, I, I upset a lot of Trump supporters by calling him a clown, um, so there you have it. Um, and also, we have a text in, Roisin, we were talking about the Sunday Business Post and their story about how doctors and hospitals cash in from Big Pharma and, and you were making a comment. But this doctor says, your contributors comment that doctors might prescribe medication for anything other than the patient's best interest is scaremongering and scurrilous. Doctors are bound by an ethical code which we take seriously. The energy of politicians were better spent in working out how to retain and recruit staff in our hospitals. Well clearly retaining and recruiting staff is an important issue and needs to be addressed but also I think anybody who reads Susan Mitchell and Jack Horgan Jones's piece in today's uh, Sunday Business Post cannot be but concerned about the role that Big Pharma play in our, our, our health service. It's just not acceptable. It's a question rather than, than a direct accusation. It is, it is a question and it's, it's a point that is made quite strongly in that piece. Uh, Let's talk about the US presidential election. We will know in the early hours of Wednesday morning if it is going to be Hillary or if it's going to be, God help us, Donald. And I think that you are all ad idem that it is going to be Hillary. Is that right? Well, I'm well, well, you I, would I, I did him and hopeful. And sure. <laughs> yeah. What you're saying that Kevin Doyle has a great piece where he says in Sunday Indo, if you do one thing this week, stay up late on Tuesday night, no matter what happens, history will be made. And he says it'll be on a scale of JFK's murder in 1963 or Apollo 11 touching down on the moon in 1969. I don't know, will it be that big um, either way? Um, but I think the world will, will be watching. Yeah, there's always the, the old cliche is trotted out at every election. This is the biggest election in our lifetimes and you, it, it never really is the case. But you do get the feeling that this is a quite a seismic election. And not only will America change, but the world order will change if Donald Trump wins because he will herald a new era of protectionism. Like the stuff he's been saying about America's relationship with the world is being quite scary, you know, suggesting that why don't the Japanese play for our air bases over there? Why are we supporting our NATO allies in uh, Eastern Europe? Like it will herald a huge change across the world. And I suppose we cannot hope that Hillary wins, but it's going to be tight. Um, it does seem that, that the momentum, though, is with yes. Trump. And that's the concern, just that there's such a mm. tight time frame now that that could continue for the next couple of days. No doubt there'll be other stuff coming mm. out, you know, whether it's sex scandals or other allegations in relation to, to the email uh, saga. Yeah. But um, it is worrying that the momentum mm. seems to be with Trump. Isn't it funny, though, that, that Trump... Um, because he has had so much thrown at him and that he has said so much himself that even stuff that's coming out now, this idea that he had an affair with a Playboy model and that the National Enquirer bought the story and decided to bury it so that it wouldn't embarrass Trump and it came out in the New York Times doesn't make a splash. It doesn't even make a blind bit of notice in the American voters' minds because they have been become immune in many ways to this type of stuff. I was watching news coverage last night and it was interesting. They were uh, vox-popping voters who were uh, participating in early voting in certain states and a a woman who was casting her ballot said that exact thing. She said, anything that arrives now, we're so overwhelmed and saturated with it it all. 
we mostly have our minds made up and it would take a huge uh, element to knock certain people's support off course. I think the interesting thing is that what uh, Roisin was saying about Trump having momentum that we saw Hillary with a lead between 6 and 8% mm-hmm. following that tape that emerged of Donald Trump but the longer term pattern seems to have re-established itself quite quickly. If you look at the American pollsters, they say that the pattern has always been Hillary's been a couple of points ahead, be it two or three or four percentage points. And that changes when either candidate hits a big scandal, be it Hillary's emails or Trump's tapes. But it always reverts back to that tight Hillary lead. Well, well we look back at, at Brexit, Roisin, and, and the pollsters got it wrong there. Mm-hmm. It was within the margin of error. Uh, which they always add uh, yeah. as uh, terms and conditions of reading these polls. And, and you see, one, there's one poll, the LA Times, uh, I don't know how they've managed to be consistently different to every other poll, that has Trump quite clearly winning. So, you know, are we in that Brexit zone where the pollsters may have actually got a bit of a, a bum steer from the people they were talking to? I think that's quite to? possible. And, I mean, it is a very scary prospect. There's no doubt about that. I mean, one of the things I think that's extraordinary about American politics is that given you know, how advanced the states are. And, you know, they they pride themselves as leaders of the free world. And yet, when it comes to it with presidential elections, the choice is so awful. How can they throw up two people like this? Mm. I mean, where really the choice is, who is the least worst of the candidates? It's an extraordinary thing. And I suppose it's... uh, The problem, I suppose, is the... um, the fact that American politics is, you know, funded by big business and there are so so many conflicts there that, you know, the, the candidates are fronts, basically, for, you know, very strong vested interests within the country. So it's not a free election to to a large extent and that's why it's so important that you have controls about big business funding Mm. politics. But the the way that this has played out um, we have seen the pillars of the democracy in many ways undermined particularly let's face it by Donald Trump. He consistently has a go off the media saying they're out to get me and then there's a conspiracy Mm. there. He has actually gone to the trouble of trying to undermine a federal judge who happened to have made a decision that had gone against him therefore undermining the judiciary And, and we see there are in there are parallels to what has happened on this side of the Atlantic, admittedly not in this country, but in the UK, whereby the media has been, some mm. parts of the media have been very critical if they were pro-Brexit and you're on the wrong side, of, are, are anti-Brexit. And this week we had the British judiciary being undermined by, by the Daily Mail in a, in a particularly offensive way, Mary. Um, and Michael McDougall has a, an amazing article in his usual very articulate way in the back of the uh, Sunday Business Post on that very thing. Um, the British tabloid um, media for the last 20 years has been anti-Europe. Um, so it was no wonder that you got the Brexit vote, particularly with readers of th- those newspapers actually voting in that way. Um, but I think for them to turn on the judiciary this week um, was in fact going to undermine um, the whole of the system. And in fairness to the British judicial system, it is a very, it's a solid, rock solid system mm. um, which serves the country well. In fact, it's one that we've modelled uh, our system on as well. Um, so to that kind of insidious uh, undermining um, of all of the pillars of the state mm. uh, is much more dangerous, in fact, than any Brexit. I think the, mo- the, the, the most dangerous uh, thing Donald Trump did in this election cycle was basically casting doubt on whether he would accept the result or not when he said, I will accept it 
if I win. I think that was more dangerous than his attacks on the judiciary. Like, there's an interesting piece in Sunday Inno today, amongst, in its middle of its election coverage on page 21. It says, uh, it's ugly, but it's not the dirtiest election ever. And it recalls the 68 season, you know, when you had the deaths of Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King. Like, attacks on the judiciary in an American context are, 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 they've happened before. If you go back to the 1912 election when Teddy Roosevelt tried to reclaim the presidency from Taft, he went on this platform that judges could be overruled by popular referendums of the people. So that's not unprecedented. It's not welcome, but it's not unprecedented. What is unprecedented is someone raising the prospect they would not accept yeah. the result of the election. I, I think Michael McDowell's article in the Business Post is excellent actually in relation to the Brexit situation where, you know, some of the, the tabloid media in, in, this, in the UK are seeing this as an anti-democratic decision by the courts during the week. Whereas it's actually the opposite. Because but it's, it's a separation what, what of powers, the which is fundamental. The courts are saying that Parliament is sovereign and it's Parliament mm. who has to decide on this. And, you know, it's very interesting. It's, uh, Mike McDool raises the question that the option of a snap general election for Theresa May isn't on because mm. of the fixed term parliaments now. Um, you know that was suggested during the week that she may go for a snap election. There is a way of getting over. There, There's a way of doing that, but you need a two-thirds majority. Yeah, but of, you can basically engi- if you can engineer it. If it, there is a way of doing it, it's not easy, but it's 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 it's, it's it can be done. I think. It's, but the great hypocrisy, the great hypocrisy about this 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 cry during the week was that most of the Brexiteers campaigned on a, a platform of re- returning sovereignty to the British to our courts, courts and yes. our parliament. And, and like and damn the European the Parliament, damn the European irony Party of Human of Rights. All of this is this is going to be appealed to the Supreme. Supreme Court and there is still the option open to the British government of an appeal to the European Court which I think is fantastic <laughs> considering the, it's on the matter of Brexit. The, 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 the interesting thing is that it's, it's inconceivable that Parliament would vote down the will of the people in, in a referendum so perhaps Theresa May would have been better advised immediately after she took office having a quick vote in Parliament authorising her to trigger Article 50 at a time of her choosing she's now left the door open like you cannot see the Parliament uh, rejecting that particularly when you're in a situation where the Conservative Party is split you have Labour uh, MPs in the north of England looking at UKIP over their shoulder most of their constituencies went for exit but you could, you could see it being used as a way to engineer a softer Brexit. But perhaps maybe I saw an interesting theory raised in one of the papers yesterday that perhaps it's Theresa May's game plan all along, that she knew she was going to have to go for a soft Brexit. She goes hard at the Tory convention, roils up her base and then is brought well, back she, to the she's centre. She's either an extremely good tactician or she's making it up as she's going along. I, I fear it's the latter. In fairness to her, I don't think she's making it up as she's going along, but I think she found herself in a position um, that she actually didn't favour a Brexit and now has to be the one to negotiate it um, and leading a country into doing something that she absolutely fundamentally does not believe in. Um, and all of the difficulties uh, for Britain are now being thrown up and indeed for Ireland. Um, I mean, we're talking there this week in some of the papers about the uh, forum that took place uh, this week, the nor- North-South Forum, um, without, of course, the unionists. Uh, in fairness, it was a start because it gave civil society a, a voice in it. Um, but I genuinely don't see any real plan across all the different departments as to how we're going to handle it. And it should be there mm. from something as fundamental as education and how we're going to deal with the university students mm. to how we're going to deal with the economy. But how many, you were one of two junior ministers in health. I think we've got five junior ministers. <laughs> Surely we can put one of them as a junior minister with responsibility of Brexit if anybody would be yeah, willing it, to take it, that particular poison chalice. Again, you get the feeling that government hasn't made any preparation for this at all. I mean, the figures, the, the forecasts they're using in terms of VAT receipts and VRT haven't been 
adjusted at all uh, post-Brexit. And when you consider the collapse in the value of, of sterling, I mean, the implications of that are enormous for rev- revenue here in the South. Do you know, and... There, there are huge incentives now for people to go shopping in the north. Um, we know in relation to the car industry, whether it's new cars or second-hand cars, huge implications for dealers here in the south. So, you know, there were... It, my colleague, actually, Catherine Murphy, did a bit of a study there last week in relation to prices. And if you go out to any of the shops here and you see the comparison between sterling and the euro on the price tags on, on things, they haven't been adjusted at all. So that's increasing the incentive for people to go to the UK okay. or go north. And they are shopping. in their droves because it's an awful lot cheaper to get but stuff there, in there Northern Ireland. there is going Ireland to be a big now. black hole yeah. in, in the state finances revenue, as absolutely. a result of the reduction I, I, I want that. to talk about a story that is becoming quite the perennial. Um, Drinks advertising on television, um, it, it is included in this new bill, the public health alcohol bill that is going to ban um, advertising by drinks companies on television and also at bus stops and train stations and parks or within a certain distance of a school or a playground. But it would appear, uh, Fiek, this is on page three of the Sunday Times, that uh, not a lot of people in the advertising industry, those the advertisers themselves or indeed the television companies, are particularly keen on the idea uh, to the the point to which they've uh, started talking to Dennis Nocton and telling him not to do it. You, you, we wouldn't be surprised if they're not keen on the idea given the amount of revenue that goes into alcohol sponsorship by sporting of, of sporting events, of television programmes or well not of television programmes but you see it like even you think the run up to Christmas the amount of adver- advertisements you see for alcoholic products like the most glaring example being Guinness the kind of you know homely looking pictures of Dublin falling in the snow that type I think of they, thing. they've done a new one this year so that'll be nice to see. That's the trend but I think there, it, 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 it kind of falls into this new alcohol bill as well I think there's a piece in the Sunday Business Post from Michael Brennan on page 13 where he talks to uh, small shopkeepers about their experiences of this idea of you know shutting off the alcohol from from view and it's interesting that what he, what he he seems to have spoken to people that were speaking to Finnegale TDs and senators when they engineered this kind of mini putsch against this bill, where their point is, look, it's not about shutting off alcohol entirely. One t- shopkeeper says it's about it's about kind of some people coming in buying four cans of be- beer, but they also buy you know milk and sugar and other things for home. But I think the fascinating thing about this bill was that we had. The Minister Marcella Corcoran Kennedy and with her Taoiseach behind her uh, maintaining a stiff spine on this and we wouldn't back down and they then went into a parliamentary party room and 17 people stood up and said this was this was wrong and had to be changed and then there was a change flagged uh, but I think the lobbying behind the scenes like once you take on the drinks industry you have to be prepared for what's coming for you so there was lobbying from the industry then there was lobbying from like you know the likes of Musgraves and suppliers like that as well so you have to really have your homework done and make sure you've got all the troops behind you when you're going to take them on because they're going to come at you hard. Roshan Shortall, again, this is something you would have worked on in the past. It's never going to happen, is it? This, this, this lobbying is always going to go on and we're always going to see advertising and is it that damaging in the long run? Well, there's no doubt that alcohol is a source of huge problems in this country. It's costing us an awful lot of money, about three billion a year. Uh, it has it puts a huge burden on the health service, and you know it destroys a lot of lives and causes a lot of misery, um, and a lot of social problems. So. Like we're either serious about tackling this or we're not. And we've been talking about this for years. There have been umpteen reports all left to gather dust. This uh, current legislation arises from a report, um, a, a, a 
cross, well not cross party but but a, a, a task force that was set up uh, in, that reported in 2012 and made a number of recommendations. Now are we going to go with the expert advice on this or not? Or are we going to bend again to the influence of the alcohol industry? You know politicians need to put a bit of steel in their spine, recognise that there are bigger social issues here and stand up to the drinks industry because they're putting huge pressure on politicians. Mm. And like who makes decisions in relation to policy in this country? Is it the drinks industry or is it the political system? Or, or is it the you public? Know, because we, you, you, I went, did the shopping as always on a Friday, went in there and it is what the, it was the 4th of November and already they had slabs of beer for 24 euro, 26 euro, 20 28 euro well below cost price sure. and already on display but sure, that's all year round you get a, you get a but crate the, but, but the Christmas offers oh, by yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah are starting in November but alcohol is used as a loss leader by the by the the uh, by the, by the supermarkets and this has been the big change in people's habits over recent years that people are buying alcohol in supermarkets and drinking it at home. Now, you know, the intention of this legislation, there's a whole lot of different aspects to it. Uh, Minimum pricing, obviously, proper labelling, warnings about health health, uh, implications and so on. But this particular issue in relation to the structural separation, to keep alcohol separate from bread and milk and all other things in supermarkets, has been in the pipeline for many years. It was part of the 2009 um, uh, legislation and as a result of pressure from the alcohol industry it was deferred at that stage and now it looks as if it's going to be deferred again I, I'd hope that the government you know stands firm on this because we can't afford to allow well, alcohol If to, it is in a bill that is going to be before this doll I wouldn't hold my breath as to whether it's going to be passed before the next general election well, but, but if, 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 if I, I, I think some of the sporting organisations for example have made good progress in distance distancing mm. themselves like for example it's not too long ago that the GAA were heavily dependent on yeah. the drinks and then they diversified it they got three or four sponsors for the All-Ireland Finals given the opportunity they did it and you have to give them credit they've for led that. the way OK yeah. then yeah. we are going to have to talk rugby in just a moment um, with uh, Off the Ball because if you are just waking up now good morning to you um, we did beat New Zealand last night it was 40-29 and is it Richie? I think I saw Richie coming in yeah Richie McCormick is still on a high we'll talk to him after this at Richie McCormick, we did it, and what? it was one hell of a performance last night. That's the thing. I think it, it wasn't ground out, it wasn't luck, it wasn't by chance, it wasn't by a mistake by the opposition. We did it in style. We ran in five tries against the All Blacks. We beat the All Blacks. First time in 111 years that we've beaten this side. When you think of the Irish players that have gone before, that have played tests against the All Blacks, uh, going back to the very early days of rugby and going back to uh, you know 1963 when we were beaten 6-5 when we drew 10-10 at Lansdowne in 1973 uh, when we came so close three years ago. And I think since then, Joe Schmidt has kind of had a bee in his bonnet about this game. He's seen... A, what it is or what it would be to beat the All Blacks and what it would mean for Irish rugby and what, would, what it would mean for Irish rugby standing and the standing of this team in general. And he saw that it's doable. To quote the great bard Phil Oakey of the Human League, they're only human. You know, <laughs> they, are, they were beatable. And they showed last night that if you go out with the right game plan, if you go out with enough confidence, 
A, in your own abilities and B, in exacting the game plan that your coach has set out for you, you can do it. And largely a home crowd as well, which yeah. is impressive considering it Doesn't was in hurt. Chicago. Yeah. Doesn't hurt. 60 odd thousand most of the Irish. Two yeah. things. We're very happy that uh, Joe Schmidt has just signed a new contract. Looks amazing business now, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and the second thing is we have to go and do it again in two weeks' time and yeah. we're going to be in Dublin. And I suppose the natural Irish instinct is that we're going to have the living you-know-what kicked out of us. At the the living you-know-what, I don't know. I don't think I don't think Schmidt is a coach that would let the players, and he now has a couple of weeks with them as well, to work with them. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, this is the first of the Autumn Internationals he hasn't actually had that long to work with this group of players and yet somehow has moulded a team that can go off to Chicago and put five tries in the All Blacks as, as many as they conceded in the entire six games of the Rugby Championship I mean that's the perspective we're talking about here um, Schmidt is a very meticulous coach we saw that with his, his team selection people kind of called it conservative but he knew that these were the 15 guys to go out in the field and actually put a pasting on this side yeah. you know and I don't think he'll allow them slip into complacency to the point where we'll take a hammering there is a chance every chance I mean the All Blacks are a very good side that we could get beaten in, in Dublin in a couple of weeks time but I don't think it'll be a hammering and I think I think yesterday has imbued the side with a sense of confidence that it will be hard to shake We saw that uh, uh, Joe Biden the US Vice President yeah. actually related to Rob Carney on Twitter which is uh, we I think we all are this morning yeah, We know now yeah. Yeah, Absolutely we all came but Enda Kenny the Taoiseach tweeted last night Chicago Cubs win out after 108 years Ireland win after 111 years Mayo to win after 66 years let's do it lads yeah uh, there's other people saying that they'd have to move the All-Ireland final to, to Soldier Field I mean they would have to put or Mayo would have to get to the All-Ireland final first which would be a big question uh, I know the producer in the box is now grimacing at me with something fierce uh, the other, staring at your question yeah, the other caveat to this as well that we have to worry about is that there will be uh, no doubt um, comedy musical stage productions uh, done in this game's honour as well you know, opening a march and running for the rest of your life so it's, it's to be wary so, Stop being so negative. You could, I'm not being you, could, negative. you could write the musical. You could make a fortune. I, I, I mentioned it on Twitter earlier on. And I'm claiming intellectual copyright. Should anybody else attempt this? So I'm, I'm in the I'm in the money this morning. Healy. What's on off the ball from twelve? Uh, we'll be obviously talking about the big game last night in Chicago. I mean, half the team were over there at us. To be honest with you, they were lucky enough to witness history. Uh, we've also got two live commentaries from the Premier League. We'll be starting off from the very off at midday with Arsenal versus Tottenham in the North London Derby. The title credentials of both will be tested severely today. And also Manchester United. God, they need a win. Uh, talk about a side who need a win in the Premier. League. Uh, they are away to Swansea this afternoon. Dave Mack and uh, Damien Lynch are going to be at that. We'll be looking forward to the FA Cup final as well. A fantastic day at the Aviva. Uh, only a tenner in for adults as well. The Women's Cup final on before it as well, which is going to be a great game. So, a fantastic day there. Oh, and it. yeah, and uh, yeah, Cork. Could it be their day? You know, it could be the day for the underdog. I sure look, Drahada can't, or Dundalk can't and everything, surely. Uh, they're that good that they probably could. All right, off the ball, on the way at 12 o'clock. Richard McCormick, thank you very much for that. Uh, Brendan O'Connor um, has a, a very interesting piece in the Sunday Independent today, Mary Hannafin. Why I will never allow my children on social media. Um, and he talks about how they're not yeah. going to be allowed to take part in Zuckerberg and Co.'s big experiment. Is he right? He's right. He's absolutely right. He won't be able to do it, but he's absolutely right. Um, and I think the point he's making is that it takes so long for legislation to follow the practice um, that any laws in Ireland or anywhere else are not able to respond uh, to these big changes. And he's saying it's not just a question of social media. These are big industries now. I mean, Airbnb, he says, is not just um, a, an app 
um, it, it's a whole hospitality mm. industry uh, and the same is true for, for, for anything to do with, with social, social media. Now he does in fairness also balance it out by saying um, that his girls have learned positive things from it. His, mm. his older mm. girl is very good at Italian from the nap and his little girl Mary who has um, Down syndrome is a different person because she's able to use the iPad. Um, but it's all the, um, the, the negativity uh, how you get so absorbed in the whole social media um, uh, what I personally hate is the anonymity of it yeah. you know that you, you can have a comment and, is, and, and then you have everybody and just to finish it. up I'm conscious of time just to finish up is there not a ridiculous irony in Melania Trump standing up saying that she, one of the first things she's going to do as first lady is tackle bullying on social media when the man she's supporting for president her husband is probably one of the biggest proponents of he's it he's almost got a nomination out of bullying and trolling people on Twitter he's the ultimate troll but I thought that was a very interesting piece by Brendan O'Connor and particularly there's a passage in it where he basically says that Zuckerberg and his ilk are like no different of the moguls of old they are as capitalist as people we've seen at, at any time in the past yeah, just because they wear sneakers and jeans doesn't make them any less so and they're there to sell us stuff and advertise as well Just let's call the election if we can uh, I know you were kind of you, you were leaning towards it earlier on Roisin Shortall who's going to win on Tuesday? Clinton by a whisker Clinton by a whisker Fia Kelly? I think Hillary by a nice chunk in the Electoral College but I'm not sure about the popular vote And uh, Mary Hannafin? Yeah I would Fia I think she'll win it on the Electoral College Okay we'll hold you to that because uh, we might be talking about something very different come Wednesday lots of coverage of the US election to come on Newstalk throughout the week we thank you the panel and we'll talk more about teachers next